I'm Julie Holland. And I'm Nick Spacek. We're the hosts of The Carnage Report, a horror news podcast, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Every other Thursday, we bring you the latest news you can use on horror movies, casting, production, re-releases, trailers, and more. We also do a deep dive into a movie new to streaming or theaters, giving you our thoughts and opinions on whether you should check it out. Toss in recommendations for similar movies and a whole lot of commentary, and it's all the horror news you can use. The Carnage Report is on Twitter and Instagram at Report Carnage. Find us at cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy folks, my name is Owen Brand. And I'm Katie Cadaver. And we are co-hosts of the VHS Vault Podcast, where old is new and cringe is king. Uh, we are a podcast dedicated to bringing you old and obscure movies from deep in the vault. That's right. You can listen to us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and on Planet Rage Radio Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central on the Live 365 app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And email us at VHSVaultPodcast at gmail.com. The Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud, Fast, Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personable in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Com, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. It's E-S-S-E-X coffeeroasters.com. Com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. Big shout out to the band Crossed Keys uh, for lending us that awesome fucking music during our little ad. That song is called Who We Never Were. You can buy that single currently off of Bandcamp. The band is called Crossed Keys. It will be on their full-length album, Believes in You. Uh, that song was lent to me by Crossed Keys, specifically, uh, I don't know if he goes by Joey Angel or goes by Joshua Alvarez, but I met him as Joshua Alvarez. He's the co-host of Cinepunks, our fucking network, and I told him, I love this song, I want to use it, so that way people don't have to just listen to me talk, and he said, fuck yeah. So please, if you like the song, uh, the song is called Who We Never Were, you can get that on Bandcamp currently. Uh, it's off of their album, Believes in You. You can get the 10-song... The 10-song LP is out May 5th. Friday, May 5th. 
uh, you can actually order it on vinyl right now. So go show them some love. Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, Corpse Grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite films, just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust, starring Divine, Putney Swope, The Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition, or Blu-ray, and The Angel Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Viers and joining me today is John Connolly. John Connolly is a film fanatic who has been working as a community and labor organizer in New York, sorry, New Jersey since 2013. And this is your first time not only on my podcast, but any podcast, despite the fact that you're friends with a lot of podcasters. So that's kind of funny that I'm the one who brought you into the fold for the first time. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I guess it took the right combination of uh, a good point in my life to have some free time to come onto a show and also a great movie to talk about. So definitely thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. And I guess when I so those of you who've been listening for a while now know that I this season has been kind of a patchwork quilt of guests because my my normal uh, main man, uh, Nick, he had to take a sabbatical for a while and I didn't want to take a season off, so I thought, fuck it, let's just see who I can get. And um, I reached out to just anyone who want, who was listening on the on the Cinepunks Discord server, uh, and then you and Nick Spacek were the two people that got back to me 
and offered your services to be on the show, for which I am uh, extremely grateful. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, no, so I've, um, you know, been, uh, I guess, uh, obsessed with films since I was a young kid. And also, I think kind of the intersection of interest that leads to this conversation is, you know, I come out of a union family. I was taught not to cross a picket line before I was allowed to cross the street by myself. Um, and so I saw when you had reached out to the Discord, uh, one of the times that you had some opening was around like Labor Day weekend. And I kind of scrolled through the back catalog um, for Shameless. And I was like, oh, well, they've never covered Norma Ray. That's that'd be a great movie to talk about. And at the time, it was kind of timely because the Writers Guild strike had just started around that point. So yeah, it was I, it was really it's just bubbling at that point. I don't right. think they had they had fully started striking yet, but yeah, I think so. That was like May, I think second or so that yeah. that really kicked off. Um, so now you know, a hundred days later or so, we now um, still have the WGA out on strike, and they've been joined by one hundred and sixty thousand. Uh, folks from uh, SAG-AFTRA. So Hell, John Goodman's out there. Uh, Eli Rob, Gemstone himself is out there picketing. Uh, not someone who I'd want to piss off personally. No, but... e- even like in his current state where he's like he's lost some weight and he's a little bit older, I feel like he could still just crush my skull open with his hands. No, for sure. Or that, that one clip of Ron Perlman that went viral a couple of weeks ago. It's like, yeah, no, I know I know he's an actor. It's his job to convince me that he's scary. But dude's also kind of scary. I don't want to make him mad. Well, he's from that generation of actors where, like, they were just scary. Like, no one questioned Charles Bronson being a badass. You just knew he was. Cause, and Charles Bronson also seemed to, or even, like, James Coburn, they just seemed like dudes who would get into a fight at a bar because they're bored. Sure. And Ron Perlman is from that generation. And actually, so is John Goodman, just, you know, slightly removed from it. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, not uh, not as common of a breed these days. I don't know who the modern equivalent of that would be for sure, but... I don't know if we really have one. Like, I, I don't know if there's been an actor that I've seen that that I just 100% know. It's like, that guy's a fucking badass. I'm sure there's someone. I just, I just, I'm struggling to think of who it could be. Yeah, I'm completely drawing a blank, I think. <laughs> So you like uh, you, you've you've said to me uh, both off mic and through email that you know you're you are kind of an anomaly on this show a little bit where you are the only guest I've ever had other than maybe my mother who, who who's made a, a brief appearance in our Gone with the Wind episode who just does not have any podcasting or jur- journalism experience filmmaking experience any of that and that's not necessarily a bad thing because as I told you that's how you get started like we all just start by doing um so how did you kind of get in the cinepunks fold um i mean i don't know if i'm necessarily in you're on the discord server that that counts that is yeah no for sure i um started listening to i want to say it probably got in through twitch of the death nerve um i'm also from the uh Philadelphia area, so I kind of was Googling around for, like, Philadelphia film podcasts, um, or I might have even, I think, at some point been looking for, like, specifically, like, oh, like, I wonder if anyone's ever done an episode about, like, exhumed films and some of the stuff that they've done, and of course, like, a couple of people have affiliated with Cinepunks have 
covered various exhumed events over the years. So I kind of stumbled into the back catalog through there. And then, you know, after listening to uh, that show uh, and to a couple of the other shows on the network, uh, just it seems like a really good way of spending my time when I'm especially, you know, driving between house visits late at night. It's good to have a podcast on in the background. No, definitely. Um, and like, so before we talk about the um, the the film in itself, so it, as your bio says, you're a community and labor organizer. Uh, what is that like? So the only thing I know about my unions at all, because my I didn't come from a union household. My mom works in billing for healthcare, and my dad installed alarms. So like, you know, I didn't come from a union household. Like, and everything else I've learned, I've learned from watching movies. So. Um, you know, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. Um, how did you fall into that? Tell me a little bit about that. And cause like, it's gonna, it's gonna reflect the conversation that we're going to have. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I mean, part of it is, you know, coming from, uh, you know, several members of my family being very active in their union locals, either, you know, my dad was a teamster. Um, I have family members who were involved in like state workers unions or who were teachers who were active in their locals, um, uh, kind of seeing the union difference up close of like, you know, when I was a young kid and my dad went to work at a union shop for the first time and, you know, the changes in the amount of free time and the job security and the safety at work that came with that union contract, um, kind of really instilled a really you know, deep hand, deep firsthand understanding of the importance of uh, people having those kinds of rights at work. Um, I went to college in 2013, I'm rather, rather uh, finished college around 2013, but I uh, went to college, you know, around 2009, which was when a lot of state programs in New Jersey were really facing some pretty steep cuts from the governor. So, you know, coming in through a program for first generation college students and then seeing friends of mine have to drop out because they could suddenly no longer afford to make, you know, payments for the next semester, uh, really kind of made up my mind that what I wanted to do with my work for the rest of my life was, you know, work to build power with working class people to kind of change how these, uh, how these stories play out. I, I, ironically, the thing that I had wanted to do when I entered college was a media studies program. I was, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel very rudimentary amount that I still kind of know about that kind of world. But, you know, in, a, in an alternative lifetime where I didn't make that decision, maybe that would have been the field I would have gone into. But. Well, let me tell you a secret. So I did go to school for for film. I went for filmmaking, not necessarily film film theory or film studies, because it is a different world. Um, and so, like, I was I learned the grunt stuff. I went plus I went to an art film school. You know, you go to, like, UCLA, you learn how to crew up, and you learn how to, like, make this into a potential career. You go to uh, the school I went to, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, their Peck School of the Arts. They are great about putting a camera in your hand and fostering creativity, but at no point did I feel uh, that I ever learn how to make this into a career, which is why I work in healthcare. Um, but what I really wanted to, what I wish I would have spent more time on, because at the time I was so focused on being a director, I didn't think any of that, you know, film studies hokum was was worth my time. I 
wish I would have focused more on that. So I reached out to one of my old professors and be like, hey, I've been thinking about going back for my master's degree. What do you think about that? And she straight up told me, it's like, there's nothing that we can teach you that you can't learn from reading a book. So that's what I'm going to tell you. If you want if you want to get down into film studies, man, there's books. There's plenty of them. <laughs> I got a whole fucking bookshelf full of them. You can be a labor organizer and a movie nerd or whatever. Sure. That's so, absolutely. That's uh, my inspirational speech of the day. I, I am I am deeply inspired. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you. So you you're, I, I feel like we'll 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 be touching on it as we dis- discuss the movie. But you described yourself as a community and labor organizer. How does that translate to you getting someone to vote? Sure. So, I've been sitting um, here trying to think about that. Yeah. So there's kind of uh, I think well my personal career kind of has a pretty hard split where I did community work for a number of years and then went to work more focused on worker organizer worker organizing for a union um prior to that i had worked on things like you know working with community members to get paid six day laws passed in their town and stuff like that um so um the process of getting anyone to whatever the ask is right whether it is um we need you to vote on election day, whether it is we need you to sign a union card, whether it is uh, we need, you know, we're stickering up or we're taking care of some other kind of action at, at, jo- at our job to put pressure on the boss for whatever reason, um, really does begin with a conversation, with talking with the person, understanding their values, understanding the things that they are motivated by, um, and being able to kind of reach them on that human level, um, which is, I think, Part of what makes movies about organized labor particularly interesting to me is because that kind of work in certain ways both is and isn't cinematic, right? I think that like there's an inherent drama in what I do as an organizer, um, but it is also kind of, you know, sometimes hard for a movie to kind of convey the extent to which building these relationships takes time and takes a lot of uh, a lot of trust between uh, not just one person or two people, but, you know, a whole committee of people who are able to move a workplace or move a community. No, it makes complete sense. Cause like, I didn't, I didn't know if that was something you did as a labor worker, like trying to get people to vote. Like, I didn't know if that was, if it's connected in one way or another, like, do you just carry cards in your back pocket to sign people up or? Um, well, no. So typically, at least in my experience with labor organizing, it's a little bit different than Rubens in Norma Ray, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's not like I show up outside of a workplace with union information for workers because that's a really great way to get the boss anti-union campaign kicked off before there's a committee formed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so typically... I work with people who have come to us as a union and have said, my coworkers and I need a union. How do we go about doing that? And then we work with them to recruit a, uh, you know, a, a committee of their coworkers together who can reach, um, you know, people throughout the workplace and can really start uh, the process of building the power that it needs to actually become a union. Right? I always tell people like. You don't become a, a union the day that you win your election. You don't become a union the day that you are certified. You don't become a union the day that you have your first contract. You become a union the day that you and your coworkers decide that we're going to act like a union. And so that that takes time to 
build those kinds of relationships and to have people learn to trust one another in that way. No, that makes complete sense. I think uh, that's kind of the best way to then introduce our, our topic for the day. So yeah, you've listened to the show a little bit now. You know, this will be the point where I talk for a little while because I'm going to read the intro I wrote for the movie. So <clears throat> on today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show, we're scratching something off my shameless that feels rather topical considering when we're recording this. We're recording this on August 22nd, 2023, which is a short hop, skip, and a jump from Labor Day. The reason I'm specifying that because with the way my record, my schedule is, this might not come out for another month or so. <laughs> but it's important because while we're recording it. Um, uh with this, and John having worked in organized labor, he felt it was only proper that we discuss Martin Ritz, Norma Ray. Norma Ray, our titular hero, works with her family in a cotton mill in a small Alabama town, and the working conditions are beyond poor. It's dingy, it's hot, the hours suck, you constantly have your boss breathing down your neck, and the people in charge don't care if you're hurt, sick, or even if you're losing your hearing. But Norma is a single mother of two kids, so who is she to complain? However, once she meets Ruben Warchowski, War, I'm going to mispronounce this, Warchowski, that was it, things change. Ruben is a union organizer from New York City, and he's come to Norma's small town to help unionize the factory she works in. He's met with a lot of pushback from the workers who don't want to rock the boat and risk losing their jobs. However, once Norma's father dies from a heart attack while on the job, she knows she can't rest until she and Ruben can form a union. Norma Ray's plot was based uh, was based on the story of Crystal Lee Sutton, who successfully established a labor union for J.P. Stevens Textiles in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. Norma Ray had its premiere at the 1979 Festival de Cannes, where it competed for the Palme d'Or, but it lost to Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. But if you're going to lose to a fucking film, might as well be Apocalypse Now. However, and the film did win the technical grand prize, and Sally Field won Best Actress at Cannes, just like she did at the 52nd Academy Awards and the 37th Golden Globes. Norma Ray was written by Irving Ravitch and Harriet Frank Jr., with cinematography by John A. Alonzo and music by David Shire. The film stars Sally Field, Ron Liebman, Bo Bridges at his probably sexiest, and Pat Hingle. From 1979, directed by Martin Ritt, this is Norma Ray. Norma Ray has been working since she was 16. She's been a mother since she was 18. She's been on her own since she was 20. Norma Ray is a survivor, and for the first time in her life, she's got a chance to become something more. Good morning, Wachowski Textile Workers Union of America. A winner. Good morning. Nice met you before. How you doing? You sure fish out of water down here. <laughs> this is not exactly my native habitat. If I joined up with you, would I lose my job? No way. I was never a very good Girl Scout. I'll go along with you. You are the fish I wanted to hook. 20th Century Fox presents Norma Ray. Norma, you got the biggest mouth in this mill. Give us a longer break. Give us more smoking time. Do it. Now shut up. If you're in the State Department, we'd be at war. Proven, I think you'd like me. Did you ever sleep with him? No, but he's in my head. You're going too far now, Norma. This here is our home. How am I going too far? There's a bunch of black men in there. You're going to get us in a whole lot of trouble. I ain't never had any trouble with black men. 
The only trouble I ever had in my life was with white men. Looks like you strayed off the reservation, Norma. What the hell is going on around here? They say she's made a porno movie with a local police officer. I don't believe this. Damn TV dinners, kids going around in dirty jeans. I'm going around, uh, without, altogether. You know what I am? And you know that I believe it. It's standing up for what I think is right. She's a free woman. Maybe you can live with it, maybe you can't. This is the story of a woman with the courage to risk everything for what she knows is right. Lady, I want you off the premises now. I started this, and I'm going to finish it. I want you out of here right quick. Norma Ray. So you had asked me a question before about um, uh, if this had been the first time I seen Norma Ray. Was that correct? Yeah, when we were kind of making small talk, that was the. Yes. So this was the first time I'd seen Norma Ray, and not only was this the first time I'd seen Norma Ray, I don't think I'd even heard of Norma Ray before. Oh wow. So um, and like you said, like and let's be real, if I had heard heard of Norma Ray, I don't know if if, if I wasn't pushed into watching if it would have been a movie that would have jumped to the top of my my watch list. Not because it's not a great film. It's just like you said, there's something kind of unsexy about trying to create a you it's not an inherently visual thing it's like watching a movie about a guy trying to write that could be really boring if it's not handled correctly which norma ray was um so yeah this was this was a first time watch for me and um i was like riveted from 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 the get-go i didn't know quite what to expect with this movie um uh, i wasn't expecting it's more gritty aesthetics. I wasn't expecting. It's almost like um, uh, it's, it's handheld way of shooting where it just felt really personal. Um, and then, I, you know, not that I'm doubting Sally Field or anything, but I was just, also wasn't expecting for how good these fucking performances were. Like everyone is just at the top of their game in this movie. So oh. the, this this was a first time watch for me, but it's 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 one that I'm going to be thinking about a, a lot, and I definitely do have some questions for you as we delve deeper into it. I am so relieved to hear that you liked it, honestly, <laughs> because I I would hate to you know come on your show and be like, oh, we should watch this movie, and then spend an hour hearing like, oh, it was okay. Oh, if, you, if, if you want an example of that, um, with my with my with my co-host Nick, two episodes, one the last picture show we did. He hated it. I loved it. So there was kind of a weird like back and forth. And then if you listen, if anyone out there has listened to the show enough, knows that my buddy Nick he's a big Star Trek fan. He's a big D and D fan. Pretty much nerd culture. So I thought, oh, I'm gonna choose Galaxy Quest. He's gonna love it. He hated it with a passion. So oh, no. it happens. But that doesn't mean good conversation can't come from it. But no, I I, I actually really loved this movie. Um, so much to the point where a friend of mine that I work with. Uh, she admittedly hasn't seen many movies, and I put this on the list of recommended recommended movies that she needs to watch. Always, always happy to spread the good word. <laughs> um, I actually, I hadn't seen this movie personally until maybe like 
four or five years ago because I had an old boss who would often refer to a Norma Ray moment, like uh, kind of half jokingly, like, oh yeah, we, what we don't need here is a Norma Ray moment. We need, you know, to actually build towards something that is that public. Um, but after kind of hearing that reference so many times, I kind of was like, oh, you know, I need to sit down and just watch this movie as homework, I guess. And kind of found myself in the same situation of like, I initially came to it. It's like, you know, this kind of older film from the seventies that I don't know if I'm going to click with and was just floored by the end of it. Um, my spouse and I watched it, watched it. It was uh, my, my spouse's first time watching it this weekend and kind of had the same reaction where they were basically saying like by the end of that first scene where Norma's mom is being checked out for her hearing. My, my spouse turned to me and was like, God, this movie already has me crying and it's minute like five. What, what are we watching? <laughs> yeah. Um, and at no point, like I, I knew the basic concept of Norma Ray, just, just based on context clues of us emailing back and forth. So it's like, oh, it's about a, a woman who forms a union. Like the, that's the, the, the tertiary just basics that I knew. Um, that being said, so while I knew that was the end game, um, I couldn't necessarily tell you that I, I couldn't predict necessarily how this film was going to play out. I knew that it was, I I can't even say that I knew it was going to end with them forming a union because this is the 1970s, man. Movies didn't end how you expected them to. That was kind of their whole shtick. Like this movie could have very easily still ended with no union being formed and it wouldn't be surprising for the time period. When they do the count at the end, oh, and I knew that there was about 800 workers in the facility, and the guy reads off almost 400 no votes, I like my heart sank, having already seen the movie once. I was like, oh, oh, crap, did I forget? Did they lose this vote? Like, And uh, it was just, again, like you were saying, it was, it was the 70s. Rocky doesn't win at the end of Rocky. Like, There's yeah. no reason to assume that he's going to have a happy ending. Yeah. And and that's what I found so appealing about this movie, um, and it also just it made me curious just about one like how, like one how the how unions work, but then two like is this how things are done or was this how things were done like who can start a union like there's so i had so many questions because realistically the only movie that i could think of off the top of my head that had anything to do with unions and it's a very um other side of the coin to it is something like blue collar with mm. paul schrader like that movie's about unions but it's a very different perspective on them <laughs> oh sure and you know there's movies that's just something i i was actually recently joking with about a, a friend of mine at work about with, with a friend of mine at work is like there's movies that I absolutely love that have an incredibly negative uh, view of what I do I mean Blue Collar would be one of them On the Waterfront is one of them yeah. even, you know even something like uh, you know The Irishman isn't necessarily an anti-union movie but definitely shows some of the more seedy side of union history um, and these are, you know, fantastic movies. So it's good to be able to also point to something like a, like a Norma Ray that is like, hey, like there's actually like narratives out there that are, you know, also very, very competently made films and very compelling movies that don't have this kind of baggage that something like an On the Waterfront has. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Um, so you said you, you said seen this movie for the first time uh, three years ago. Um, 
And do you remember, you might have already answered this, but do you remember, like, what you were thinking originally? When, like, did this movie capture imagination right away? Or was it just kind of like one of, like one of those ones that just kind of hit underneath the surface for a little bit and just kept bubbling up? Um, I mean, it was, I think the first watch, it didn't affect me quite as emotionally as this most recent rewatch did. But I think, like, just, like, starting with that... Um, you know that opening country song um, uh, that uh, I didn't write down the name of, unfortunately. But you know this this very kind of sweet, uh, slightly sad song about the way in which a person's life kind of flows like a river, uh, and then moving from this very sentimental sounding song into just this loud factory floor. Oh, those opening credits are incredible. Um, is yeah at the very least on this rewatch it absolutely like uh you know completely had my attention from from you know out of the gate but um i think probably the first time i watched it i don't think i necessarily had as much of an in into the movie until ruben showed up only because you know while i i do come from you know a working class community a working class family um I think Northeastern working class and North Carolina and working class are kind of slightly different animals in certain ways. Mm-hmm. So the first, the first person that I, I saw that I could look at and was like, Oh, like this, this is a dude that I know was, <laughs> was really Ruben. Um, uh, Cause you know, I, I think that other than that, it was, you know, slightly you know, similar class signifiers that you can point to of like um, one of the things that I really appreciated uh, that I was thinking about on this rewatch is how rare it is to see a major Hollywood film that really gets into the way in which manual labor really has a toll on your body, right? Either yeah. in the story of you know Norma's mom, or obviously also her father by the middle of the movie, uh, not to spoil or something on a movie podcast, um, but... Uh, oh, the spoilers are fine. Sure. I, I, I was, yeah, I was teasing. I, I, the, the disclaimer that you have towards the oh, beginning of the podcast, I, God, I, I didn't appreciate. even catch my own reference. Um, <laughs> no worries. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that, uh, one of the things that I really appreciated in, especially in this watch, watch through was that how rare it really is to see a kind of major Hollywood film that addresses the way in which kind of, you know, manual labor really does have this ongoing toll on your body, even, you know, when the, working class is depicted in a lot of more modern films it is this kind of more glamorized version of the working class that doesn't really connect to any any experience that i have or any other workers that i work with i feel like truthfully have ever had you know no and that's absolutely true like it's it's the 70s were a weird time because it was it was they were subverting expectations and it was the time of the anti-hero but then you know films like this were also being made because like before this you had like the john wayne type character where he you know in his own way was glamorizing the middle class and or the working class not the middle class like the working class and how you know that's how you know if you've done a you know a hard day's work if your hands are bleeding from blisters shit like that and like like you said it's kind of coming back to that in in um in, in cinema in a very weird way but having um so i grew up in in milwaukee but uh, which is a it's just a, a a working class town a lot of uh, uh, brewery workers and but my dad 
he's from a small little town in Virginia called Hayside. It's just right up in the Appalachian Mountains, and it's a coal mining town. And pretty much the only real job to sustain yourself in that town is the coal mine. And to see just the toll that took on my on members of my family, like I have a family member um, who he's he's definitely older than me. Like I want to say a good 10, 15 years older, but he looks so much older because of how hard of a life that can be and i never understood that glamorization i still don't get it i don't get the uh you know uh, for lack of a better term like you know the truck driver memes of uh you know working 70 plus hours i don't want to work that hard and neither does norma ray and her family they just don't realize it no absolutely i think that especially when you you can kind of see a similar comparison in, uh, not to oversimplify things, but between, you know, modern country music and country music in the 70s, where, like, you know, a lot of the music in the 70s really is about how much work sucks. And, it was about social uh, justice and, and as well. Sure, absolutely. And I think that it's kind of for similar reasons why I think Martin Ritt, uh, as the director of this film, has a closer connection to what these workers are going through is you know part of what got him blacklisted in the 50s was his involvement with labor unions and his involvement with um you know organizations that were committed to helping the working class right i mean he uh came out of a tradition in new york of where like you know the retail wholesale and uh department store workers union would uh, fun plays essentially where their workers were uh, able to kind of demonstrate the fact that they had real talent as you know set designers as uh, as writers as actors um, and Martin Ritt uh, had directed several of those plays um, before he was a Hollywood director um, and so that is one of the things that in the 50s when the Red Scare is really you know at uh, you know, its peak got him in a great deal of trouble with the studios was these right-wing organizations digging up, like, these kind of lefty-leaning, union-funded plays that uh, that Ritt had uh, been involved with. Um, and I think, you know, coming out of that tradition, you can kind of see why that is a theme that he pays attention to kind of throughout the rest of his career. Yeah, and it's, it's actually, it's... It's it's a definitely a similar similar um, um, struggling to think of words. See, you know, I do this all the time, and I still forget what I'm fucking talking about <laughs> half the time. Um, it's a similar um, trajectory in a way to that of Ilya Kazan, and we just um, uh, just an uh, episode or two ago uh, we talked about a face in the crowd and mm-hmm. the types of films that he was making after these trials versus what he was making beforehand and. Um, yeah, it's 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 so fascinating to me that the because the idea, the very you know, please, you're the expert when it comes to these to the labor unions far more than me. Um, but the way I understand it, the whole the basic concept of these of a labor union is to get a fair shake and to not work yourself to death. And it's so crazy to me that. To talk about something like that in the 50s was enough to get you blacklisted. 
like oh, why was this a bad thing and like well, sure. I, I i get sorry i don't mean to cut you off sorry, i just no try to get a thought out um but i get like in in the movie norma ray when ruben's going house to house and trying to get people involved i get their intrepidation because they don't want to fucking piss off the people who are in charge and lose their job but like but still at the same point they were far more like violently against it like why why are you beating someone up because he wants to make your life easier (laughs) So there's a lot going on with that. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I think that, I mean, we could talk about the way in which that continues to this day, right? Where one of the things that the boss is going to rely on once a campaign is public and the boss fight really starts is their ability to drive sections of the working class against one another. And sometimes that's on racial lines and sometimes that's on you know, gendered lines or other kind of uh, easy, well, easy to anticipate if you've read a history book in your life, uh, kind of uh, 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 ways in which people get divided. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's subtler than that. And it's, you know, departments against one another at a workplace or it's, you know, they they dig up things they can point to in, in someone's past as a reason why they, they aren't to be trusted. I mean, the, well, uh, they did the all scene, that in this movie. Absolutely. Um, and uh, if anything, um, things in terms of what the anti-union uh, consultants get up to during a union election, they haven't gotten any less morally repugnant. They've only gotten savvier, right? They, they don't typically, you don't, typically you don't see stories of workers beaten up in the streets these days, thankfully, uh, but they absolutely, you know, have a very, very strong multi-million dollar industry around uh, having captive audience meetings where they pull workers in a shop together and, you know, the boss can lie to them for an hour at the time about all sorts of things and hope that they can just get away with it because no one will report them, report them to the National Labor Relations Board. Um, that is, uh, I think, something that does continue to this day and is, you know, why it is important when you're going into an organizing campaign for workers to you know build strong committees and to be able to really rely on one another because you know if someone isn't prepared for that kind of fight it is uh really hard to kind of uh get over right i think that uh i have a coworker who often quotes a uh I believe it was it was Mike Mike Tyson who said, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face, um, and I think that that is often kind of what my job is as an organizer is like we are going to go we're we are going to go public at some point, and management is going to try to hit back with everything that they can, and my job is to make you prepared to be here still standing, uh, stronger than before uh, once once the punches start flying. Um, I, you did touch on something really interesting, which I do think is uh, well, a couple of really interesting points. But I, I think uh, talking about Kazan and Rit, um, I, they, I believe, were colleagues at one point in New York. I think that uh, they had kind of worked together on some I some be- plays I believe and stuff together. So. I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so it's 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 really, I guess, you know. Yeah, hard. I think they were both in the actor studio. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
it's hard for me to kind of resist the urge to kind of paint one guy as you know the hero of a narrative and one guy is kind of a little slightly shadier where you know they both end up you know call before huac they both end up being asked to turn in uh friends and and uh collaborators and uh one does and one doesn't and thankfully the one who doesn't was able to eventually get his career back on path Mm -hmm. but uh uh it's definitely um one of the reasons why i think you know comparisons of this film to on the waterfront are, are kind of interesting is the biographies of the the two directors involved for sure yeah definitely and so like i said some of these questions are going to come from me just not knowing how unions how unions operate so at the beginning of this movie norma ray is working at this textile uh, factory uh hard conditions what i i wasn't surprised so when ruben joined the film like I said, the idea that people were reluctant to talk to him, I get that. Um, a couple of things I was surprised about, that he was he's allowed to stand outside the factory and hand out, for lack of a better term, the way the bosses probably view it, union propaganda. Um, I don't like using that term because it's a negative term, but that's kind of what he's doing. Um, sure. Because he's trying to get them interested, though, I like... But I just kept thinking, like, none of these people are, and Norma Ray even calls him out on this. Like, none of these people are just going to sit there and read this. Like, oh, I love the advice that she get, she gives him of, you know, if I, if I'm not going to read this, they're not going to read this, right? Yeah. I think that that is when we talk about lessons that like a new organizer could take from this movie. I think that's honestly one of the more important scenes, and frankly, something that I'm guilty of having messed up early in my my career as an organizer. I know that. Um, uh, one of the first kind of community campaigns that I worked on uh, was a paid six day ordinance in a, you know, a, a very working class, predominantly black um, town. And uh, I was very lucky that I had one of the guys who was really involved in the campaign with me on my first night going door to door and talking to people because the thing I asked somebody was if they would be interested in testifying about their experience. And he uh, very politely said, no, 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 I'm not interested anymore and shut the, shut the door on me. And the conversation had been going very well up until that point. And my, uh, you know, my friend who was going door to door with me, someone who had been involved in the campaign longer than I had been and who was actually from that community, he was like, John, you need to understand you are a white guy at this man's door asking him to testify. Mm. And so now he thinks you're a cop. Mm. Um, and so he basically, you know, thankfully, you know, this, this guy who actually was from the community was able to, to knock on his door again and explain to him exactly what we meant. Um, and the conversation went better from there. But like uh, these sorts of things that you really don't think about until you've been in the field and you've had conversations with people about the way in which uh, the message absolutely matters um, and how to frame things in a way that aren't either insulting to people's intelligence or speaking to them on a level that they're just not um, not speaking to you at, you know? Yeah, and then Norma even does, like he teaches him that he needs to know his audience. What works for him in New York won't work with these people the the what drives them is completely different um 
and then another scene that I just I found fascinating because like once again like I I figured if if a if a factory doesn't have a union, like someone like Ruben would be completely unwelcomed. Like I'm surprised that he's legally allowed to go through the factory and make sure his signage is posted. Like what is the story of that? Yeah, so I I don't want to speak out of turn because of two reasons. So one being I don't I don't work with a union that represents textile workers. So Fair I'm enough. not necessarily familiar with, with certain labor law that might apply to them. Um, I also wasn't alive in the 70s. That's, uh, that's so fair. There's certain, but but in general, I, I would say during a union campaign, it is illegal for management to engage in behavior that is uh, intimidating, in, that is threatening, that is, uh, you know, engaging in the kind of surveillance that you see in this movie where they're peering over people's shoulders as they're taking those documents um or to engage in kind of other activity that you know the labor board would see as management uh you know interfering in the election to the point that a fair election just isn't possible so my understanding just based on what is said in the movie is that at some point they have gone to the labor board about this boss already and the board has said that you have to have those notices available to the workers mm. um i could be misinterpreting that but i think that that's kind of what the, the the situation is and so i think that you know in general um you know i think that 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 is one of the the again one of the great moments in, in this movie is when norma ray is brought into the manager's office and she starts asking how to spell people's names um i've i've had to coach workers through moments like that right of, of being prepared for what happens when inevitably they need to talk to their boss about an unfair labor practice charge. Um, and uh, typically, you know, that is the moment where the smarter, smarter bosses at least back off a little bit because the other answer to that is, like, you're going to see your name listed in a federal labor charge with the National Labor Relations Board. And uh, that is something that will be listing you personally. It isn't going to be listing J.P. Stevens. It's going to be listing. It's going to be listing you as the manager that broke the law. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, the moment where uh, he's standing outside with the flyers. I mean, all, already management is is very clearly violating the law because they're standing directly over his shoulder, oh, yeah. watching him. Talk and, to and, and they they were standing so close when I was watching the movie and. Since I'm still getting a bearing with the characters, I figured that was someone on his side. That's how close he was standing. Then I realized, oh no, that's a that's a that's one of the management, right? And yeah, I think that uh, typically, you know, the smarter smarter bosses, when you tell them, are you aware you're breaking federal labor law right now? They realize that I'm not being paid enough to do this, <laughs> um, and I should go find something else to do with my time. Yeah, um, and like, and it was crazy. Like, well. One of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when Ruben does get to go into the factory, and he's investing, and like he's looking for these signs, and he's just you know jovial greeting the workers, and is how often he uses that as ammunition. It's like you're, you do you know you're breaking the law, or do you want to speak with my lawyer? And how often that worked. Yeah, and I think that you know in certain cases you know it is one of those situations where what is cinematic maybe does and doesn't line up with what is actually strategic in, in that situation. You know, if a boss is following me around a work site, that's probably not going to be the time that I'm going to 
really realistically try to have an organizing conversation with a worker. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it is, oh, you know, it is such, there's such that a great, great line where he's like, uh, do you like your job? And he's like, I'd like to keep it. Yeah, I'd like to keep it. Exactly. Yeah, I think that that is, you know, probably <laughs> unfortunately a good way to underscore the thing that the boss is trying to insinuate to a worker, which is you'll get in trouble if you do this, which is, you know, obviously bullshit. But, you know, a worker might not be aware of their rights under the law or might not even be aware that, you know, the information their boss is giving them isn't correct. Um, so uh, holding that boss accountable might be a, like a little harder, but in general, I would say that um, it really is uh, such a great moment cinematically that I can kind of look the other way on, on, on things of, uh, that are questions of strategy or, or, you know, accuracy to labor law in, in a situation like that, where it's like, you know, this is, this is such a good cinematic moment that it kind of doesn't matter. And, I think that, you know, in, in general, it does depend, again, from campaign to campaign and industry to industry, how much access you can get. I mean, in the uh, in the union that I work for, there are often instances where uh, someone on the union's behalf can have access to the to the uh, to the workplace for, for multiple different ways. Um, and uh, it, it's a matter of using that access in a way that is strategic. And I wouldn't necessarily use it in a way that is, you know, drawing quite that big of attention to what I am doing. Uh, but that is, uh, again, something that just makes the movie work as a movie, not necessarily as a documentary, no matter how documentary like some of the handheld camera footage, uh, does feel. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's that balance of trying to tell an accurate story, but also tell an interesting story. Um, I actually had a, scre- uh, uh, a mentor of mine in screenwriting. I was writing a script when I was in high school um, that was like loose, like it had a bunch of stuff that happened in my life. And he was like telling me all these scenes don't work and everything. And I was like, but it really happened. He's like, just because something happened doesn't mean it's going to make a good movie. And, yeah. and like, and that's the balance is like, okay, maybe this is not the right way that someone should be handling it. But it makes for a better movie. Just and and you can even make that argument with um, the kind of love triangle between between Norma Ray, uh, Bo Bridges' character, and Ruben. Uh, because I kept thinking, it's like, granted, in the hands of a less talented filmmaker, that would have been the movie. But right. that's not the movie. That's just a small subplot that also never really had like uh nothing truly happens between them the feelings are there there's the chemistry there but nothing happens which is good because that would probably be uh, very bad for a union organizer uh to to get into a situation like that um but like you know if we're if we're talking about accuracy you know that probably wouldn't have been involved but that makes for you know makes for a better movie having some of these you know relationship things at play yeah it was definitely i think the aspect of the movie that i kind of found least compelling personally mm-hmm. i mean as as charismatic as all three actors obviously are yes um i i kind of didn't necessarily need the added drama of a love triangle on top of everything else that was going on. And frankly, like 
I think Ruben and Norma, their relationship as characters is, is way more interesting without that subtext. I, I completely agree. Um, but I do, I do agree with you that like in general, the question that the screenwriters are asking here is what's going to be more compelling on the screen for an audience in 1979 and not necessarily what's more compelling for, you know, me, a labor organizer in 2023. Um, and there's actually, there's a line that Irving Ravitch and Harriet Frank wrote in another film, uh, the Cowboys that I think speaks to this kind of where, uh, the character, um, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on the actor's name, uh, that, uh, uh Roscoe Brown plays says, well, if it ain't true, it ought to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, I think a very, uh, a line that comes back to me a lot whenever I'm watching any kind of, you know, based on a historical uh, event kind of movie is like, well, I don't necessarily know that this is true, but it's absolutely the thing that works for this story. So that's the thing that I'm more, I care more about in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you. Like, I don't necessarily feel like we needed the implied love triangle between Sonny Ruben and Norma Ray. I, 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 like you said, all three actors have great chemistry, and I liked. It doesn't, and I think I like this because it doesn't happen enough in movies. I just love platonic friendships in movies because mm. they don't get it very much. And there was a period of time, like, and if you just cut out a couple like pieces of dialogue and a couple of scenes, this movie is pretty close to that. Um, but like, I didn't feel like I needed, you know, Sonny being jealous of Ruben. I'm completely mm. in, like I. Her, him being jealous of just him being jealous of just not getting to see his wife, I felt like it was enough. Sure, yeah, and I think that like even <clears> when you're thinking like that that swimming hole scene where uh, Ruben, you know, is washing off his shirt that he's got dirty while canvassing, like that scene could play just as well without the flirtiness to the point that the actor playing Ruben apparently was unaware that was how Sally Field was going to play the scene until... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was watching... There's a making of uh, segment on the on the DVD that I, I have, and basically he's saying that, like, I played the scene as it was in the script, which is two friends talking to each other in a swimming hole, and then I'm like, why the hell is Sally so close to me all of a sudden? We, we play the take... And we, we, you know, we, t- we do the take and then I, 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 I'm asking her, like, what the hell was that about? And she basically says, you know, it's, it's what the director told me to do in this scene. Uh, and, so and even, you know, even oh, amongst the people who are making the movie, there is, I think, a different read on that character in certain instances that, that I think is interesting to think about watching it, watching over it again. And I think, like, honestly, and I think that's why the scene works so well. Uh, and why so many scenes in this movie work so well? If we if we are, you know, to believe that I imagine this is something that Martin Rich probably doing throughout the movie, where he's telling one actor one thing, telling another actor another thing, and just kind of seeing what you know, having to play off because the whole thing about the actor studio was using externals. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, um, but I believe it's using external sources to create create your performance so you are reacting off of what you're given and but also still trying to use the direction that you're given and i think that's probably why they had such interesting chemistry is because they both kind of had a different perspective going into these scenes which works out really well for the characters because while they do have like um 
an almost romance, nothing happens. I feel like I feel like Sally Fields interested in Ruben before he's interested in her. He's thinking union throughout most of the movie. And while she is too, she's also noticing this. So it's just an interesting right. way to put together a scene. There's the, the scene where they're coming back from the bar early on, and he says something to her along the lines of, like, one of these days I'm going to get you in a way that uh, could be interpreted either way, right? Either as a flirtatious, like, one of these days you and I are going to get together, or as a one of these days I'm going to get you on my side, which I think is probably the way that Ruben meant it, but I think that, yeah, it is uh easy to interpret their relationship on screen in kind of either way in any given scene right Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that's kind of what makes them kind of more human honestly is i mean it's so common for two human beings to just have completely different understandings of each other's motivations Mm -hmm. um but yeah I, i do ultimately personally think that I don't necessarily need the love triangle in order to make their relationship, you know, interesting. I mean, got the, the kind of, you know, friendship and camaraderie that comes naturally from being in a campaign in and of itself uh, is enough of a reason for people to bond. I mean, the, the guy who presided over my wedding is a friend that I met through community organizing. Um, Like, these are the kinds of bonds that can last, uh, you know, long after a campaign is over, long after, uh, you know, the battle is won or lost, and long after, uh, you know, a contract is settled or 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 you've moved on to whatever the next fight is. Yeah. Um. So yeah, definitely, fantastic characters, and you know, far be it for me to tell, you know two very very accomplished screenwriters from the 70s that they should have done something different but uh it is absolutely if, there, if there's one thing in the movie that doesn't kind of ring ring true to me it's it's, it's that aspect of their their relationship i do think that uh you know ter- going back around to the after studio stuff that you're talking about it one of the other interesting bits in the making of segment that i watched was um sally field talking about the way in which she didn't fully get norma as a character until she actually had to operate one of those machines for a couple of hours Hmm. um and the way in which just spending spending a a fairly insignificant amount of time in a mill got to her personally was enough to kind of give her the anger to motivate the character in the scenes moving forward because they they shot in an actual mill town in alabama yeah uh which uh was i think pretty freaking hard for them to find a, a film uh, a, a, a mill that was willing to let them shoot in uh, they, they ended up finding a mill that actually had a unionized workforce and you see some of the workers as extras and stuff in uh, in shots in the movie you know adding to that realism uh that we were talking about so i i do love that though the idea that like she couldn't quite find her way into the character's head until she actually tried to work that character's job um, yeah and that and that's great that she, she and it, every actor like i've worked with actors quite a bit making films and every actor kind of has their own method to it um and and i'm glad that she she found that 
because like I sometimes forget how good Sally Field really is, especially young Sally Field. Because when I think of Sally Field, I instinctually just think of her as like Forrest Gump's mom, <laughs> <laughs> and like some you know or like something like uh, Smoking the Bandit, where she's she's fine in that movie, but she's not doesn't have a lot to work with. But then you see her in movies like this, and she blew me away, honestly, in this movie. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, very, very deservingly got the Oscar that year for this film. Um, and, I mean, when you, when you look at the list of people who originally won it, I mean, you have Jane Fonda, you have Diane Keaton, uh, you have, you know, names that I guess make more sense on paper if you're casting someone in 1979 than casting Gidget. But, like, it is uh, such... I don't think this film works as well if you had cast basically anyone else. I can't... I truly cannot picture anyone else giving those lines. And, I mean, those are some phenomenal actors, don't get me wrong, but... Yeah, cause, and, like, she she did something that I feel like every actor is always trying to do. In that I forgot I was watching Sally Field and I just was completely just I I just believed it was Norma Ray. And a big part of that is because I'm I'm sure I've seen uh, Ron Liebman in things before, but he just wasn't instantly recognizable for me. And Bo Bridges, as I said, is the sexiest Bo Bridges has ever been. So, like, I don't even think of it as Bo Bridges. Um, um, so it's like I was and the way the movie's being shown, it was just really easy for me to wrap myself into this movie and to turn off my brain and just be entertained for an hour and change or two hours, whatever it was. And why I think this movie works, there's a lot of reasons I think this movie works, but it finds a gentle balance between it being a movie about labor unions, but first and foremost, it's a movie about Norma Ray. Um, and it's almost a, you know, even though there is a plot driving it, it, it's almost laid out like a slice of life film where we're just kind of watching Norma Ray exist. Like we get a good half hour or so, maybe even a little bit more before anything with the unions is even truly brought to the forefront. You know, yeah, we're just I spending think... a lot of time with her. Yeah, that is, I think part of what rings true to me about this film as a union narrative right is like one of the questions that i i often ask a worker early on if i'm having an organizing conversation is for them to tell me about their family right and their the reason for that is you know twofold right like you know if i i, I know that they have little kids i know that you know healthcare benefits child care probably gonna be things that are important to them but the main reason that i'm asking that question is because i don't think for most people, if if I ask you, tell me about your values, you're going to have a good answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I ask you to tell me about your family, you're going to end up telling me what you what you think is valuable, right? What what are the things that I believe that I want to impart to my children? That I believe that influence the way I relate to my spouse? That I believe that influences the way I relate to my parents? Like all all of these are things that you you learn about a person by learning about their family life. So I think the amount of time that you see Norma with her kids, Norma with her mom and dad, even Norma with the, you know, kind of asshole that she's dating before she meets Bo, um, the, uh, Sonny, sorry, uh, but, uh, it's hard not to see him as Bo Burgess. Um, the, uh, 
all of that is the kind of stuff that you need in order to really understand what's going to motivate her to be part of this fight. Um, you know, in, in a longer narrative, you know, this is a novel or an HBO miniseries or something, we could have gotten that kind of information for more characters and truly gotten an understanding of what an organizing committee is and what is motivating everyone involved. But obviously, you know, in a two-hour movie, that's just not feasible or even advisable. Um, so I, I do really love the path that we are given uh, in the screenplay, in the screenplay of, of following her, you know, by following her specifically, we learn so much about the way in which this community views family, the way in which this community relates to church, the way that this community relates to race, without ever being hit over the head of like, oh well, now we're going to talk about this being a small Baptist town for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just it trickles in information in a really subtle way. And it actually, you talking about, you know, talking with workers yourself. And like you said, you, it's hard to figure out what their values are. But if you get them talking, you can see in a way who they truly are. And that actually, you, you mentioning that actually reminds me of a movie we talked about earlier, a little bit, Blue Collar, in that um, the scene that I always think about when I watch that movie is the scene even though they uh, just all spent the night cheating on their spouses and doing cocaine, the scene afterwards where it all sinks in that they don't know how the fuck they're going to support their family. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, even though you guys just did all this, that's eh, maybe not the best piece of uh, character development for you. You're, what's truly inside your soul is shining out. And after all this, you're still, how am I going to support my family? Right. So just interesting that you know like you said family is kind of how you figure talk, getting them talking is how you get them to figure out their values and no yeah. absolutely and i think that you know that is you know the kind of complicated figures that you see in 70s drama that aren't so common in mainstream movies nowadays really uh i mean part of what I, you know, one of my my favorite scenes in this movie is when the folks from the National Union show up and they're talking about Norma Ray being kind of a bad person to be seen as a leader of this movement because she is uh, kind of seen around town as being, you know, someone with loose morals um, and the way in which, you know, Ruben stands up for her as a person. I think, uh, you know, not getting ahead of ourselves, that isn't quite my answer for the Thrill House question, but it's up there. Um, I think that being able to understand people as flawed without giving up on them is very important to this work. And uh, knowing when something is a character flaw that is going to prohibit them from being a leader versus something that is a character flaw that is their own business i think is something that does take a little bit of 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 nuance and and being able to really talk things out with that person but you know it doesn't seem like norma's co-workers relate to her less because she's not necessarily someone that would fit in with the legion of decency uh if anything probably a lot of them like her more because of that um yeah they they liked her less when she was the boss or you know watching them um yeah they they didn't give a shit about any of that stuff before 
And that is when we talk about kind of the uh, more subtle things that bosses do. Like that is such a textbook uh, way to try to quiet the troublemakers, right? It's like, oh, we're going to give you this promotion. So maybe you're not going to be part of the bargaining unit and you won't be able to vote in a union election anyway. But also uh, this promotion isn't that much more money and is something that's going to make all of your coworkers hate you is uh i think you know union busting kind of 101 stuff right that is uh something that they must all be taught in those those terrible seminars somewhere wow um so i i struggling to talk it's been a long day um i feel like we touched on a lot when it comes to norma ray and what i always try to do with this with this show is whenever possible use the movie as a launching pad to talk about a bigger conversation and i feel like us talking about unions and kind of how those operate was kind of my goal with this episode um i, I wanted to ask before we move on to the thrill house moment was there anything else pressing or anything else that you really liked or anything anything else you just wanted to talk about with norma ray before we start wrapping up i mean yes yeah, it's, it's already been a pretty long conversation i mean there's probably you know entire academic papers people could write about the way in which like gender and race play such a major role in this narrative and that's because those are again lines that management uses to divide workers against each other to this day mm-hmm. um i mean the, even subtle things like when the boss is talking to her about things that she's been a troublemaker over one of the things that he brings up is like and the damn kotex machine and that's when she finally loses her patience with him like <laughs> well if you if you give it to me i'll stop yelling at you about it it's like god like most of your workforce looks like it's, you know a big chunk of it is women that's probably a need for a lot of people who work here um and you can't even give them that damn um but anyway yeah let's definitely uh i don't want to belabor too much on on those issues not that those aren't you know super important issues to talk about especially with with this film and about you know the working class in general but i am also conscious of you know not trying to talk to you and i'm not trying to talk you all talk you off for the rest of the evening about that kind of stuff well and one thing i will talk about with that is like um that's well that's what the labor bosses tried to do. They put up that poster that was essentially saying that if you create the the union, you know, your black coworkers will have power over you. And we're trying to play into that racism aspect. And that's why Ruben wanted her to write that, write the poster down word for word. And in one of the most stressful sequences of the movie is when she's standing mm-hmm. there trying to write it down and they're trying to do everything they can besides lay their hands on her to get her to stop yeah no absolutely that is i think a remarkable sequence uh you know starting with the you know you're starting with the boss putting the letter up in the first place the amount of kind of dread that can build in that sequence from from that to the black coworker getting assaulted to mm-hmm. uh norma finally uh having her norma ray moment um is uh I think uh, such a powerful bit of filmmaking for sure, but I think that that is, again, something that you still see to this day on organizing campaigns is the bosses are smart and they understand what will cause divisions in a workplace and they do their damnedest to put pressure on people to make those divisions come to the forefront. No, I think that's really well said. 
So we we hinted at it before. Um, I I kind of I gave you the rundown in the uh, the email what the the thrill house moment what is. Um, so do you have a thrill house moment in this movie? Um, so it is. It's probably not actually the iconic scene, right? I mean, as much as you know, when people think about this movie or talk about it to this day, you think about Sally Field with the Union sign. Yeah. Although. I, interesting not the image of it on hbo max which i think i i am trying not to be conspiratorial and think that that's that's intentional but maybe um oh god i didn't even think of that the uh but i think it's actually the moment after that you know i mean you know the the kind of talk that ruben gives her in the car on the way home of you know here are all of the things that i've seen um, you got hit this time, and we just have to keep in the in this fight. I think is is a very raw uh, bit of dialogue for sure. And then just that speech, that you know, that monologue that Sally Field gives to her kids about, well, you know, your mama's a jailbird, is honestly like such a emotional moment, and really does get to so much of that about that character and also you know the strain that comes on a campaign sometimes of you know these are the conversations that she has to have with her family because the bosses are determined to stop this thing by any way possible uh including you know trying to to, you know destroy her her character in town uh, is uh, I think definitely a, a, a you know a incredibly powerful scene and, and definitely one that every time I rewatch it it's hard not to get kind of teary eyed even talking about it. Um, I, I I suppose is is it appropriate for me to ask what your uh, personal what your your personal favorite scene in there would be? Of course, um, there's so many good scenes in this movie. It, it's it's kind of hard to pick one, but I would say. You know, using my definition of the throw house, and this is what I like about this: everyone's definition of what constitutes as a throw house moment is different, and I and I like that. For me, it's it was my it was my lock in the moment that just really got me. That's like you know almost that that moment where it makes you sit the you know edge of your chair and like I'm fucking in. And it's it is the scene of um, of Ruben take doing a tour of the factory. Mm. Because I, as I was watching the entire time, even though it was kind of he's being jovial and lighthearted, but he has this air of fear on his face the entire time because he doesn't know what, what what's going to happen. <clears throat> I think he's confident in a way that he, you know, there's a good chance there's probably not going to be any physical harm to him, but he doesn't know. Um, but that. There were th- that entire scene, since I didn't know how that was going to play out, there was just the sense of tension the entire time. And then just with the... I also appreciate that the sound designer, they didn't lower the sound of those machines to make the dialogue more easily to understand. It just, it, those machines were just like causing so much anxiety the entire time. And at that point, I was like, I don't know where this movie's going to go after this scene, but I'm fucking in for it. Yeah, no, that is. I think, I mean, it's 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 hard to pick a a specific scene in this. That is, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, the it, 
the only other thing that I definitely want to make sure that I, I touched on was the scene where she's talking to the pastor at the church about oh, having a yes. meeting. Um, and just like specifically the line where the, the pastor says that this is a house of God. And she says, well, that's actually what I'm trying to figure out is like, I think, you know, we talk about calling the question, right? Of like, like not leaving a conversation without a absolute certain understanding of where this person stands on this issue. And like, that is such a good, I'm calling the question moment of like, are you actually going to live up to these values that I hear you, you, you preaching every Sunday? Or are you going to, you know, buckle to the whims of the mill in town? Um, is honestly, that is, that is the moment that probably every time I watch this movie, uh, just my, my complete attention is, is now uh, mm-hmm. focused for sure. Um, I mean, it's, Definitely, I could probably say the same thing about the opening credits. To be honest, yeah, those, those is, opening credits are great. Movie to... <laughs> yeah, those opening credits were great. Like it's it they do what I think a good set of opening credits should do is they it it established tonally what I'm getting ready to getting ready to experience, and I feel like the art of the opening title sequence is kind of becoming lost. Hmm. There are still filmmakers who do it really well. Don't get me wrong, but that was a conscious thought process for a good long while in hollywood so yeah um is there anything else you want to talk about with norma ray the last thing that i did want to add and this relates both to the scene that you love of ruben coming in to inspect the billboard and also to the scene of sally field standing up on the counter with the iconic union sign is that A union's power does not come from its staff. It doesn't come from its contract language. It doesn't come from labor law. Union power really is people power, and it comes from the workers in a workplace coming together to decide that they want to speak with a collective voice. And so while obviously the Sally Field standing up on the counter with the union sign, that moment is iconic and that moment is powerful, the thing that gives that moment its power is not Sally Field, it's all of Norma Ray's co-workers deciding to turn the machines off. Yeah, well I guess my last question for you before I wrap up is, are there any other, um, whether they be pro or anti, union movies you recommend? Oh god, um, probably too many off the top of my head. Um, so you, you talked about Blue Collar earlier, mm-hmm. Um, there is actually another really good um, movie that also stars um, Pryor, uh, and that's Which Way Is Up, which is actually uh, directed. But it was actually uh, the, the screenplay was was written by uh, former WGA president Carl Gottlieb. Um, de- definitely a slightly different union story than Blue Collar. It's 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 way more comical. I actually have that movie, and I've never watched it. Oh, I would definitely recommend checking it out then. Uh, you have Matewan, which is, uh, you know, amazing, period, coal miner movie. Uh, uh, you have The Molly Maguires, which is also another Martin Rip film, also about coal miner unions. Um, there's a whole bunch of them, but honestly, probably the one closest to my, my heart personally will always be Newsies, because mm. uh, that's the film that hit me at a at, at a appropriate age um I actually just saw the stage play for that done by um a local theater very recently 
Oh, how was that? First time seeing it. I, I, I loved it. You know, a little rough around the edges because it's, you know, I think it was a, like, a, I think um, they, they did it at a, at a high school, but I think it was like people older than high school age. But I, I thought it was great. The songs were catchy. Got a little teary eyed as, as I was watching it. It was great. No, it's a, it's definitely, I think, a, a film that uh, holds up to this day. Um, and I, I have a, a personal connection to it because, you know, in, in high school, the marching band had done that for uh, a theme for the year. So there is footage somewhere out there of me at like 16 years old, dressed up as a newsie, like reading the libretto before a performance uh, somewhere that I hopefully is, it hopefully is buried deep, deep in the internet. Um, but uh uh, definitely a, a film that uh, I know is still relevant to this day because they've done Newsies days on the picket lines for SAG-AFTRA and WGA. Mm-hmm. Um, so still still has a cultural impact for sure. All right. Do you have any social media you want people to follow you at or do you not care? Um, I don't really have – I suppose I could I could plug my letterbox if – Yeah. Uh, I will so, follow you right now. Absolutely. So on Letterbox, I am. I don't have any personal projects to plug. Would it be appropriate to plug the like strike fund for SAG-AFTRA? One hundred percent. Cool. Um, so on Letterbox, it appears that I am John Con, uh, which is J O H N C O N N. Found you. Sure. Cool, excellent. It should be a picture of me with like a weird monkey prop. Oh my god, Grizzly is one of your favorite movies. All right, absolutely. I, I love Grizzly. So we're, we're oh friends. yeah the, right. the 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 topic of of Jaws uh, ripoff films is is one definitely dear to my heart. Fantastic, um, for sure. Um, so yeah, the uh, oh so yeah on on, on Letterboxd, uh, it'll probably probably actually be moving Norma Ray back up into that top four, uh, having rewatched it recently, but. Um, uh, Letterbox. I am John Con, J O H N C O N N. I also think it's probably appropriate, giving the topic, uh, the topic of today's uh, movie. Uh, I don't personally have any projects I could really plug on the podcast, but you know, if you go to entertainmentcommunity.org, you could find the Enter- Entertainment Community Solidarity Fund, which is you know helping folks during the strike who've been affected by everything that is has been going on uh caused by uh people being out of work during a incredibly important strike for the history of that industry i mean uh i i hope everyone listening to this podcast probably understands the severity of what is at stake in terms of you know the art that we all love here so uh definitely an important uh cause to contribute to and i'll send the links to you as well if you want to post in the show notes 100 percent would like to fantastic um well definitely thank you so much for having me on of course thank you for coming on i'm glad i could uh get you on your first podcast and after the first time it just keeps getting progressively easier and easier um as always guys you know where to find me i'm pretty much shameless to picture show everywhere if i'm not there i'm michael underscore vires you can find us on the cinepunks network that's c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x dot com uh where you can find other great shows such as cinema cinema smorgasbord uh, the aptly titled Cinepunks, or even Twitch of the Death Nerve, Fat Girl Hacks, plenty of other good content as you know, as well as my my little show. Um, and um, yeah, thanks for listening, and hope to see you next time. Shame time, shame place, shameless picture show. 
The Shameless Pitcher Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Viers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Viers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.